You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. And, well, we've got no Mark uh, this week because, well, he's just become a daddy. Hey, yeah. And so I suppose we'll probably be, probably be, you, know, you can tell already I've got a bit of a cold. I seem to be suffering from a lot of colds lately. This seems to be mm. coming up more and more often in the podcast. Mm. I don't know. Even more if, if Mark's got a baby now and when he comes back, he'll be having colds every what monthly yeah. do you reckon yeah mm. weekly especially once the child starts going to playgroup and stuff do you think it's because i'm getting old that <laughs> i'm getting more susceptible to it as well yeah well why do you get colds you should be quite hard being a postman out in the you know out in the winds and the frosts and things with the shorts. yeah but nothing, maybe nothing but it's shorts because on. maybe it's i don't wear shorts lee maybe it's because <laughs> the weather itself is getting worse yeah maybe maybe weather I have doesn't to say, cause colds so doesn't it? it's virus <clears throat> Well, quite, doing. but it weakens your system, so you're more susceptible yeah. to catching a virus. I have to say, some of the this is the Blue Box Weather Podcast, <laughs> and we'll be telling you what the weather's going to be like for the <laughs> next twelve months over the course of this podcast. I predict snow in February. Um, is it possible you <laughs> change this up? Is it possible <clears throat> you pick up bacteria from licked stamps? Oh, oh I wouldn't have thought so. Do you know how Little Mail actually has stamps on it these days? <clears throat> and actually, stamps, you don't need to lick them anymore because they're sticky now. They are sticky, you're absolutely right. But the envelopes, some of the envelopes have still got horse glue on them or whatever it is they use. Yeah, yeah maybe I'm catching viruses from horses. Yeah, and um, of course, yeah, and when you steam your stamps and okay. stick you, you who on the back of them. <laughs> <coughs> you and who on the back of them? Hey, guys, we've been putting it off for too long. Hey, all right, we are here. Well, no, we're not here to talk about the time of the Doctor, really, are we? Because as we were saying just before we press record, if we'd have done the review a week ago, straight after the episode, we'd have been reviewing the episode. Mm. But things have taken a bit of a turn in the meantime, mm. and. Being that you two are just on Facebook, we were saying you've been a little bit isolated from this. And Lee, you don't go on Facebook even all that much. so Not not this week, I haven't, no, not at all. So this is going to be quite interesting, because I don't think Lee is remotely aware of what's happened. And I think nope. Simon is aware of what's happened, but perhaps not the extent of it. But given that we're reviewing this a week after the event, there's no two ways about it. We're not reviewing the episode anymore, we're reviewing the reaction to it. <laughs> Okay, this is going to be interesting then. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, we have got a bunch of emails, including some that we've had since before, um, you know, the episode was on, and reaction episode, uh, reaction emails to a couple of previous podcasts, so we'll get through those all right. Mm. We do have one really, really long one from, hang on, I'm just going to quickly look it up, from Adam Mojo Leibovitz. Yeah. who got in touch on our Facebook page and 
Well, that is a very long email and we probably won't go completely into it and I'll explain what it's all about if and when we get to it. But that email is kind of in a nutshell what the subject of this episode really is going to be all about. So mm. it might make okay. sense for us to come back to that later on and discuss that in the context of the rest of our conversation. But, but before we do... Let's actually say, what did the three of us think? Uh, who's in the microphone, Lee? I'm in the microphone. What did you think of the time of the Doctor? <clears throat> I loved it. I loved it. I loved it more than the day of the Doctor. Um, oh, really? Yeah, really. Mind you, I've only I've only seen both episodes once. So oh, and you watched the going... day of the Doctor when you were drunk. <laughs> well, no, well, yeah, I did, but at the same time. Uh, no, no. Um, day of the Doctor is really polished. Um, and I'm not reviewing that, obviously, but it is really polished. It's like it's cinematic. It had to be in order to work uh, for 77 million viewers across the globe. Um, but it was just a bit hodgepodgey, a little bit messy in theme and tone and all that kind of stuff and pace. But with Day of the uh, Doctor still. Day of the Doctor, yeah. But Time of the Doctor, I just thought was lovely. I thought it was lovely from start to finish. It had loads of stuff in there. That was that was just. You know, that I would just hold up as being some of the best who that I've ever seen. I know, I know. It just it just felt great. Um, and I'll go into a bit more about it later in detail if you need me to do that, which I can. Well, but well, generally, you... generally speaking, I just thought the whole thing worked for me. Okay, while you two switch microphones then, or switch positions of the microphone, uh, I completely agree. Although I don't think it was... Uh, my reaction... What did you say? Sorry, what did you just say? I said I completely agree. I, the word you even used the word I was going to use. I thought it was absolutely lovely, and that's the word I would use for it. Lovely, it was lovely for a regeneration episode and an end of an era episode. And I think this is perhaps where some of the problems that we're going to talk about in a bit come in. For an end of an era episode with a regeneration in it, you kind of expect it to be a little bit more involved, a little bit more bombastic a little bit more self-conscious, a little bit a little bit more direct. But what you got instead was something that, apart from the regeneration at the end, was just a lovely, laid-back, slightly slushy, but you can forgive it at this time of year, Christmas episode. And it was just... I made the point in my review that it was a bit like Star Wars meets Dr. Zeus. And, you know, if that town hadn't been <laughs> called Christmas, what better name for that town could there possibly have been than Whoville? You know, which is straight mm -hmm. out of Dr. Zeus. And that whole truth field thing felt just like something out of Dr. Zeus. Mm. So, so for me, it was Star Wars meets Dr. Zeus. And for a Doctor Who Christmas episode, how much more perfect could that be? Now, having said that, I didn't think the episode was without its problems. I thought there were problems with the pace, and I thought there were problems with the tone, because I didn't... And I think this is perhaps as much to do with the director as the writing, but I don't think the director quite had, la quite had a handle on the tone of it and quite knew how to maintain the tone and the pace so that the whole 60 minutes kind of fit together. So it didn't... There were times when the episode f had moments that felt they didn't quite fit. Whether that's the writing or the directing. So I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that it was a perfect episode. But it was absolutely lovely. And, <clears throat> you know, in terms of it being a regeneration episode at Christmas, I thought it did the job so much more appropriately than The End of Time did. 
But anyway, mm. Simon, mm. what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was great. <clears throat> it really did. Um, I watched it the first... I've watched it twice. The first time, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and, you know, it's, as you say, it's not without niggles. And... <sighs> See, I didn't. I didn't sit down and think. Oh, that's. Oh, that's a bit. Oh, that 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 pacing's wrong. That's like that. I just watched it and it flowed, and I watched it and I took in the story because it was a story, mm. and 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 just let it ride ride over me. The script was great. A little bit fast in places. There were some details I didn't pick up, which I did pick up in the second one. So the stuff that there wasn't anything that didn't make sense. And I know this is going to come up in people's comics. They're saying it was overcomplicated. But anyway, I don't want to talk about what other people are saying. This is what I thought. I really, really enjoyed it. I had a couple of small niggles, comedic Sontarans, again. <laughs> and it's, they- you know... I'd, I'd come, you know, I'd come, I'd, I'm, it's resolved in my head that Strax is a comedic Sontaran because he's been taken out of the Sontaran fleet and he's become this comedy character. And I've accepted that because it's so well written. I enjoy it. But all of a sudden, oh, hang on, there's two more Sontarans. And I appreciate they're clones and they're all supposed to be the same. But let's not make them Keystone Cops of Doctor Who, please. In I my view. I don't think they particularly were comedy Sontarans. No, don't you? I don't they, so. they were there for comedic effect. They really were. I actually agree with you, Simon. Yeah, I felt the same. Yeah. Yeah, really, I, did. I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't especially get that out of that scene. I thought the no. comedy effect was in them getting blown up so quickly. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that was funny. But yeah, I didn't think yeah, the dialogue. Yeah, okay. <coughs> I didn't um, think the dialogue between the two Sontarans itself was especially comedic. Uh, well, the fact that they were an invisible ship and they looked down and they couldn't see what they would, what they needed to do to get out of the situation. See, I'm laughing, so it obviously was funny, but anyway. Anyway, I'll let that go. And the only other thing which was resolved the second time I watched it was the character Tash. Oh, or Tasha? Was it Tasha or Tash? Um, Tasha, but he calls I, it Tash for short. <clears throat> I got confused because twice the word psychopath was used. Once to describe River Song and the next time to... Re- to to uh, describe her, he said that's because of the psychopath in you. So okay. I immediately started thinking, oh, <clears> is, this she, is she another incarnation <clears throat> of River? And then I thought about it and thought, well, that doesn't make sense. But it was only okay. in the second watching, I thought, oh, actually, no, they uh, okay. are. Sorry. Anyway. Okay, we'll go to an email. Okay. From David Carrington. He says, is Tasha Lem River Song? This came up in a chat with a friend of mine, John Fryer, and we're both of a mind that they are indeed the same psychopath. There's your word, Simon. Yeah. John's a bit of a language expert and sent me this evidence this morning, and I thought you might appreciate it. And John's message goes, This may be a stretch, but Tasha is from the Russian for birthday, or quite literally, born as. And in fact, if you take out the na out of the Tasha, I think that takes out of the day part? I'm not sure, but anyway... Oh, this is just me editorialising. But anyway, he carries on and says, And Lem, obviously, is Mel backwards. So does Tasha Lem actually mean born as Mel a Depond? Well, maybe. maybe. So there's David Carrington and uh, John Fryer. Now, <clears throat> I've seen it suggested elsewhere that Riversong was supposed to be in this episode and that Tasha Lem was written in, written in at the last minute as a replacement when, um, oh, actress... Name gone out of my head, gone completely blank. Um, <laughs> oh, actress who plays River Song. Oh, well, um, Ash, no. 
It's got oh, this is unbelievable. We're all too old. We are too Alex old. Alex Kingston. Alex Kingston calls. Oh my God, I'm the one suffering with a cold here, and I'm having to correct you on correcting me for my mistakes. <clears throat> Alex Kingston. Somebody said, oh, <clears throat> perhaps River Song was supposed to be in it, and Alex Kingston was unavailable, and so the character of Tasha Lem was written as a last minute replacement. But <clears throat> that seems like madness to me. Because, you know, the whole thing about this person being in charge of the papal mainframe is a real cornerstone of the entire episode. Mm, so mm. how does it follow that that character could ever have been River Song? Yeah. I think <clears throat> perhaps that's all just a little joke on Stephen Moffat's behalf. Yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah, because I was thinking about oh, far be it for me, be it for me to um, focus on continuity, but there isn't actually anywhere that a regeneration of River Song can fit in. We saw her change from Mel oh, into no, River Song, didn't we? Not quite true, is it? Really? <coughs> well, we didn't see a change. We saw a change from Mel's to River Song. We didn't yeah. see a change from Melody to Mel's. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> and of course, Mel's turns up in the 1990s, just a few years older than Melody was in the 1960s. Okay. Oh, yeah. We're assuming she spent all that time on Earth yeah. and she might so not. So there's okay. plenty of room for a regeneration there. Okay, cool. <coughs> oh, dear, mine. <clears throat> yeah, but I don't believe it's, uh, it's Tasha. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I completely yeah. agree. You two talk for a minute while I try and cough myself out of this. Just, um. just about the papal mainframe, which I thought was a great invention, great idea, um, and the fact that they're <laughs> protecting this world, you know, that the Doctor's in. Uh, love the whole idea of that. But even better, I love the fact that the Daleks were actually very clever this time and actually tricked the Doctor by taking, you know, by, by going to the papal mainframe and taking them all over and basically attacking sideways. Instead of going straight for the... You know, the jugular going straight for the Doctor. They're doing it sideways. Nice little conniving Dalek idea, which is what they used to be like. Um, but why it took them three or four hundred years to work it out, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, no, I like that little bit of a plot line. Wow. That's very good. <clears throat> I think there are some points at which you just have to sit back and suspend your disbelief. Yeah. Because, <clears throat> in spite of the fact that people say that, <clears throat> you know, Stephen Moffat doesn't write character pieces... <coughs> What he was doing here, oh God, I'm so sorry about this. <clears throat> what he was doing here was writing a character piece for the Doctor. Mm. Yeah. So some of the story beats, some of the plot beats, had to take second place to the character story for the Doctor. And basically, the things that Stephen Moffat was giving Matt Smith as an actor to do in his last episode as the Doctor, there was no particular reason <clears throat> for us to have to see 600 years or whatever it was of that doctor but Stephen Moffat wanted to give Matt Smith the chance to do all those different styles of acting and mm. Stephen Moffat also for the character wanted to write a story in which he aged to his natural conclusion mm. so for this last iteration there's that word again of the <laughs> doctor we get to see him age and uh, get to the point about at, at which he's about to die a natural death there's a poetic fact, there's a poetic thing about it the idea of him being an old man in a young man's body actually yeah. become the old man isn't there and also 
uh, going back to the day of the Doctor, you've got that bit at the end where you see Tom Baker as the last incarnation of the Doctor, aging to a natural death and retiring to look after, <clears throat> you know, something particular. In that case, mm. the um, museum. Or in this case, this planet, the crack, this village, this town. So, this is almost like Matt Smith's journey in this episode is foreshadowed in the day of the Doctor by the journey that we hear Tom Baker talk about having or, or taking. I, I thought this was such a brave thing to do. And also, it was inevitable, really, that you you know that Stephen Moffat would do this uh, because he loves time instead of taking the doctor sideways up down whatever meeting himself and blah 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 he actually let him get old in a linear <coughs> fashion he kind of <laughs> it's did the very complete, complete very opposite of what he normally does yeah it's a very very simple story isn't it's it it's a very simple it's very human as well it's a very simple story of somebody getting very old and protecting what they believe to be right and it's it's great you've got that little bit of a western thing going on uh, with the mix of the Dr. Seuss and Christmas and all that it's lovely but um, I did I think the one trick he might have missed or maybe he meant to do this but changed at the end I don't know but uh, you know the guy's getting old naturally just have a William Hartnell just, just let him get old and change naturally and uh you know instead of maybe getting the gallery well it was thing. his last yeah. yeah it was his last body wasn't it yeah i know i've got a thing about that as well <coughs> <laughs> but i think probably everybody else has as well about this 13th body business maybe well, that'll uh, <coughs> he'll come back to that i don't know doubt it he can't now can he well one yeah he's going to come back to it with peter capaldi a bit okay mm. we know this because he said that um <coughs> He has said that um, he's going to use, in some way, Russell T. Davis's explanation for how oh, yeah. Peter Capaldi could be in both Torchwood and in um, The Fires of Pompeii in the Doctor Who universe. Oh, right. And Stephen Moffat said he's going to use that. And I th Was it in the episode? I think there was a bit in the episode or in some of the surrounding material that suggested that it's noted. Okay. You oh, know, that that yeah. choice... Okay. <clears throat> that the choice to look like Peter Capaldi is actually a deliberate one. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's so audacious for um, a producer of that programme to completely bend the myth to the point of almost snapping. Because, you know, there are normal, <clears throat> everyday people out there, guys, not, not geeks like us, who actually enjoy Doctor Who. And so many people have said to me, oh, I'm really which one is it then? 13th, 12th? I don't know what's going on now. Oh, can't be bothered. It's almost like they can't be bothered to, to catch up with it now because it's all a bit complicated. Well, so does it matter? No, I mean, no, no, no. Well, <clears throat> it kind of, yes, it does a bit because if... I don't know what the geek reaction is out there, or the nerd, but my reaction was, oh, for goodness sake, please leave it alone. It's I don't know who's who now. Well, the point what. is, <coughs> he's but done no doubt this. He's, he's playing a trick on us, I'm sure. No, he's done this in this episode so that it can be left alone. It's mm. done. It's out of the way. You know that conversation can finish. What that is, he is the thirteenth. No, the, he, what, he what the are 13th. they going to do when it gets to the end of the 13th? People have been saying this for years. Yeah, no, Ever since I've, the programme yeah. came back, people yeah. have been going on and on about this. I don't dispute that. I think that's... I, <clears throat> I love what... If they had been naturally the 13th, this is a brilliant ending for what should have been that. But for some reason, we suddenly get crowbarred in very it's quickly. Not this that Ted sudden. Doctor thing <clears throat> and the War Doctor, which was going to be Eccleston anyway and all this kind well, of thing so it's kind of <clears throat> a bit crowbarred in it feels it's but maybe not. it's just a big trick 
That's what I believe. Lee, no, it's not a trick. Why do you think it's a trick? Be a trick. Why? Well, well, you know, um, okay, so, you know, do we really want to go down the avenue of talking about this? Because we go forever, couldn't we? But the 11th Doctor is the 11th Doctor. It's Matt Smith. But are we to assume, really, that he is the 13th? Well, obviously, because that's what the story implies, and it's his end regeneration. But, you know, for nearly only a year ago, we were all assuming he was the 11th. We were assuming Eccleston was the 9th. We were assuming, te- uh, you know, Eccleston was the 10th. So we were. Suddenly Stephen Moffat <laughs> wasn't. Well, that's what I mean. One man <coughs> has changed. Stephen Moffat has the sown whole... the seeds of this over the last two years. And I love what he's done, and I love the changes that he's made and the, 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 the audacious mm. kind of ideas that he comes up I do like them. And you've got to change the programme, otherwise it'll die a death. But I don't know why we needed to rush. To the thirteenth, by adding rush, it isn't a rush. You don't think it's, it's a rush. not a rush? No. What has happened is Stephen Moffat and uh, the people who say he doesn't know what he's doing and he's making it go up oh, as he no. goes along. The entire last four years, there are clues to all of this everywhere you look. Yeah. Stephen yeah. Moffat, as Stephen Moffat, when he took over, knew he was doing the anniversary special. And regardless of whether he knew it was going to be Christopher Eccleston or a replacement, John Hurt, mm. he knew that was the story he was going to tell because that story has been seeded right back as far as the first series. You can't honestly think that the cracks in time weren't in Stephen Moffat's mind as a place to put Gallivray as far back as then because it all looks so natural to me. Yeah, and no, that is the difference between but, RTD and him, yeah. isn't it? Because RTD did make a lot of stuff up as he right, went along. Right, but I'm only halfway through saying what I was about to say, yeah, Lee. I'm, ag- I'm agreeing with you. <clears throat> but the point is then that as soon as he starts down that road, he has to think to himself, right, the other thing I'd like to address is, in my tenure as a showrunner, this 13 lives rule, because that is going to keep rearing its head. So he says to himself... Well, okay, <clears throat> David Tennant's regenerated twice, so that brings it one closer, and I can do that with a Doctor after Matt. But then two years ago, when he starts thinking more seriously about sitting down to write the anniversary special, he says to himself, right, I'm not going to get Christopher Eccleston. And we've talked about this. Whether he would have got Christopher Eccleston or not, would John Hurt have still been in it? And I suspect it's possibly might. I think if Christopher Eccleston had been in it, and Christopher Eccleston himself said, I was only offered a cameo, I think Christopher Eccleston would have had a scene at the end of the episode, a bit like the Tom Baker one, mm-hmm. after John Hurt regenerates into him. So <clears throat> Moffat knew as far back as then that that was another regeneration he was using up, and right from that point where he knew that, he has seeded it into the stories that Matt Smith is the last Doctor. He just didn't say it outright. And if you look back over all those stories, all those tales of the fall of the 11th, and remember, the 11th is only a numbering in the off-screen lexicon. It's not in the on-screen lexicon, or at least it wasn't until Clara voiced it in that episode. But the Doctor doesn't go around saying, Oh, hi, I'm Doctor Eleven. He says, just says, I'm the Doctor. Matt Smith, <coughs> as a character, as the 11th Doctor, has known ever since we've heard about Trenzalore, ever since we've heard about the fall of the 11th, and all the other clues and hints and tips that we've had uh, over the last few years. And 
My god, if the name of the Doctor wasn't the biggest clue of all, the final resting place of the Doctor is Matt Smith's grave on Trenzalore. If that's not the biggest clue of all, so why it should be a surprise to us, therefore, that Matt Smith is anything but the last incarnation of the Doctor, I just don't know. And uh, the big clue for all of that, because I've thought about this, is that when Clara goes into his time stream, she doesn't. all she sees... Is, is those the 11th, 11 Doctors. Is those 11 Doctors. No one after mm. that. So we know that Matt Smith is the last one. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Mm. So this has been... He's laid the groundwork for this. He just hasn't said it outright. Mm. And I think that's a brilliant way to do it because the clues are all there if you want to see them. You know, and it's just... <clears throat> yeah, so on. Go on. No, go on. Well, I was going to say, um, it's just occurred to me that the that a lot of people say he's just making up as he goes along. What we're talking about here is it's episodic and it okay, you can argue that it's falling between two posts, but we're talking about something a series which is episodic in in as much as each story, most of them, okay, there are a few with the story arcs, but most of them should be standalone, but continue in the same story. So it's going to appear even if he has a master plan of the way the way the whole thing's going. It's going to seem like it's chop and changing all over the place. In in essence, looking like it's random. That oh, they're having this story, then they're having this story, and he has no idea where it's going. But the fact well, is yeah. that he does mm. know where he's going. It's the way I mm. <clears throat> the way I would have described it is when an author starts a novel, mm. he knows what the first chapter is going to be, and yep. he knows what's going to be in the last chapter. But the rest of the novel is a journey that, to an extent, he does have to make it up as he goes along. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, he of knows. Course. He knows what's going to happen, <clears throat> but he puts the meat on the bones as he goes. Absolutely. And that's what Stephen Moffat's been doing for the last four years. And those people who took him absolutely at face value when he said, oh, some of it I just make up as I go along. I mean, those people were just hearing what they wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah, He was absolutely. being disingenuous, for Christ's yeah. sake. I know, I know. I wish they'd switch their brains on. Anyway, <clears throat> yeah. um, <laughs> did I say that? Yes, I did. Um it's, you think about a Star Wars film. You've got, in every Star Wars film, has a formula, as we all know. And you've got these little sections where they go to different planets. And there's always kind of three acts, isn't there, in a Star Wars film? Well, it's three acts yeah. in both stories. Well, yes. yeah, yeah. Let's do Star Wars as an example then. Um, but I'm, I'm saying that because they literally go to different planets, don't they? Say Empire Strikes Back, you start off in Hoth, then you go into space, you go to Dagobah, and then you end up at Bespin. Um, and you extend that naturally... Over a period of time, you've got a you've got a series of Doctor Who, surely, where you've got yeah. these threads going all the way through it, which cu- which culminates in the in the bit at the end. But you've got all these different visits to different planets, and you could argue, oh yeah, George Lucas was making making it all up as he went along. But um, yeah, anyway, I think the thing that people most objected to was because River Song was popular, he made more of the River Song story than he probably intended to, you know. That's probably the biggest complaint, that in Series 6, he, and this is the one I've heard voiced perhaps most specifically, is that he told this really convoluted story about how Riverzong was this assassin who'd been created to kill the Doctor, and all this stuff about, did the silence really need to be on Earth for all these years to make a spacesuit for her to wear, and all this kind of stuff, and yeah, okay, <clears throat> A lot of that stuff is detail that Stephen Moffat probably added later in order to make more of the River Song character because she was so popular and he enjoyed writing her. That's fair enough. Doesn't end, doesn't 
make any difference to where the story ended. And of course, the flip side of that is, since when were convoluted plots in things like Doctor Who, you know, look at the wheel in space, or James Bond is predicated on ridiculously convoluted plots. You know, convoluted plots aren't the be-all and end-all of whether you should be enjoying something. You know, yeah. from, I don't mind a convoluted plot. It's whether, uh, you know, the plot itself might have been ridiculously convoluted, but the backstory to it, the idea that this faction of silence under Madame Kaverian, then as we later discover, has broken mm. away <laughs> and attempted to stop the Doctor from ever getting to Trenzalore, well, my God, it shows that even back then he was already thinking about Matt Smith being the final regeneration of the Doctor, doesn't it? And the yeah, convolutions in the plot doesn't stop that backstory having been the story he wanted to tell in Series 6. It's not convoluted. It's bloody clever. Um, the thing with The Time of the Doctor is I came away having answers to the last few seasons. Happily, okay, they were in one or two lines. It didn't matter. I got an answer. And it actually made sense. When you look back through the threads, lots of things started making sense that did make sense before. And actually, um, It was beautifully <coughs> wound up and quite cleverly done. Like, Maybe a little bit throwaway in places, but I I just um, thank you, Stephen, for putting these bits in and tricking me, not me, but you know, playing with me for a few years and then finally rewarding me with such a great episode that actually explained quite a lot. So I didn't think it was as complicated, weirdly enough, as Dare the Doctor. No, I thought it was much less complicated. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. two things. One, it takes the mythos on that bit further because Day of the Doctor leaves you with Gallifrey having potentially been saved and being somewhere. And of course, Stephen Moffat knew all along where it was. It was on the other side of these cracks. And so now all of a sudden we have uh, like a location for it. We know we have it confirmed that it didn't die, but they did save it and that it's lost somewhere and that the doctor will have to find it. But more than that, because the Time Lords give the doctor his new regeneration cycle, now he's in their debt. So it's not just a story of the doctor wanting to find Gallifrey now because he wants to but perhaps also because he feels he owes it to the Time Lords. Mm. And also, just before I go on to the other point I was about to make, but a, a, a smaller point that relates to that, you know, one of the things that people probably had a problem with was that, you know, we had this 600 years or however long it was, and the Time Lords weren't willing to come through unless the Doctor himself was there to tell them that it was safe to do so. Well, for one thing, the Time Lords knew it was the Doctor who locked them into this pocket universe so and they also knew he was the only time lord on this side of the crack so it didn't need spelling out but maybe it does for some people the doctor would be the only person they trust and don't forget this is a time uh, a gallifrey that's been absolutely ravaged in a time war that if the doctor hadn't done what he did right at the end of it gallifrey was just on the very edge of losing Gallifrey mm. was about to lose the time war. So this is a weakened Gallifrey on the other side of this time crack. They don't want to come through unless they know it's safe, because it won't be a war. If Gallifrey had come through there and then, the Daleks would have destroyed them. Mm. Mm. But the other point I was going to make was... Oh, no, God, I've been talking for so long, I've almost forgotten it now. <laughs> I was going to make a point about... Uh, No, I have forgotten. I'll try and remember it. Mm, okay. <laughs> I'll probably uh, well, butt in was, any second. 
go, go on. on. That's fine. Well, what I say is that the first viewing, I really enjoyed it. I didn't find it complicated. I understood it, apart from the Tasha bit that I wanted a bit clarity on. I inst- understood all of it. Um, yeah. And that's not me bragging. I mean, a lot I've seen a lot of people say that they found it very complicated and didn't understand it. And that's fair enough. But I'm just saying that I understood it. Therefore, I don't think it was any more complicated than it needed to be. Well, there's a good point. There's a good point to be made about people understanding it or not as well. But before I do, I remember the other point I was going to make, and it was going to be this. You know, Mm. those sort of throwaway lines about the silence being a religious order, and most notably about what happened with the exploding TARDIS and silence will fall and all that. You know, Stephen Moffat obviously felt that he needed to explain those, but the explanations were there if you looked. I think Mm. sometimes we look to Doctor Who to be especially with Stephen Moffat, we expect it to be more complicated than it really is. The Big Bang. In fact, everything from the Big Bang (laughs) up to the Lodger. uh, Hang on, I'm just trying to remember here. Lodger's in Series 5, isn't it? So you've got the Lodger, then Pandorica opens, then the Big Bang. Three Mm. episodes in a row where... Unless you're looking for it to be more complicated than it is, you've got what, to all intents and purposes, is an invisible enemy that you can't see. Mm. And the truth of it is, because, you know, it was the silence TARDIS thing in the lodger, wasn't it? Mm. Mm. And then in the Big Bang, somebody or something that we don't know, that we don't see, blows up the TARDIS and says silence will fall. Yeah. Because we don't know and we don't see. The explanation for that was in the very next uh, episode but one. Not the Christmas special, but the one after that, where we discover that the aliens who've been doing all this, they're not invisible, but we forget them when we don't see them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that was the explanation for all that. Yeah, it was. It's just that people (laughs) were looking for it to be more complicated and didn't get it, so Stephen Moffat's now had to spell it out Mm -hmm. for those people. I said this two years ago. Somebody asked me, they said, so what's the explanation for the TARDIS blowing up and silence will fall? And I said, it's the silence. He's he's deliberately done those three episodes without showing them at all, so that when he does reveal it, and it's not that it's something invisible, but it's something that you forget when it's off screen, that you suddenly go, oh wow, that's a really interesting explanation. That's really and it's good. just that nobody got it. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> asked me that two years ago, and I said that, and they said bollocks. Just, just before said, you said that, I was thinking, so how, yeah, just, I'd love to know how they actually <clears throat> did it, but yeah. We don't know how they did it, but we know how they could have done it quite Well, easily. we either assume that some there was silence in the TARDIS mm. uh, somehow, and they were with River Song when she was in the exploding TARDIS, or we assume that River Song blew the TARDIS up herself because that was what she was programmed to do, to destroy the Doctor mm. and or his time machine. So, I mean, maybe if you get down to the absolutely fine detail of it all... It doesn't quite add up. But that's the other point I was about to make about what you were saying a minute ago about it being, is it too complicated for people? It's it's probably too complicated if you look at it too closely. Mm. If you don't look at it too closely, it makes enough sense that it makes sense. Mm. You know, it sounds mm. a bizarre thing to say, but it goes back to what I was saying a minute ago about people looking for it to be more complicated than it really is. You know, mm. people are still going on about... About well, the duck pond with no ducks on it, and about Rory's badge saying 1990. Well, obviously, Rory's badge was a typo, and apparently there was supposed to be a wrap-up scene at the end of Series 5 that they never got around to filming, in which there was an, inverted commas, explanation for the ducks on the duck pond. 
No, there wasn't going to be an explanation for the ducks on the duck pond. There was going to be the payoff to a joke. When he saw the duck pond with no ducks on it and said, why is it called a duck pond if there's no ducks on it? That was a joke. There was going to be a payoff to the joke at the end of the series when he sees the duck pond with ducks on it and says, oh, look, the ducks are back. Mm. And that was it. Nothing more complicated than that. But people are still going on about that now. You don't need that second payoff for the joke to have worked in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It is a shame, though, because they had to build that duck pond into a car park. And me and Simon were actually standing on that part of that car park a few weeks back at Stag 2. And we looked at it and went, what? They built a duck pond for that one joke. (laughs) Are you not saying that they didn't build a car park afterwards? Ah. Oh, I forgot. And maybe that's why they couldn't go back and film the scene with the ducks on, because it was a car park at this point. Uh, it costs too much to make <coughs> a car park. Um, <coughs> I was going to say, case in point, there's that character in the latest episode of Sherlock. Have you seen that, Lee? Yet? No. You haven't seen that yet. I watched that oh, this he's, afternoon. He's taking his headphones off, like that's going to stop him he- me him hearing me. Uh, that yeah. character who looks too far, he gets the explanation of how Sherlock faked oh, his death. Oh, the news guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's and a then he's still he's still something else he thinks of, and by that time yeah. Sherlock's oh, that's brilliant, brilliant. Anyway, yes. You know, I'm not as impressed with just a sort of sidestep for a minute, and I'm not going to reveal any spoilers here, Lee. So you quite happily listen. Okay. I'm not as impressed with Sherlock as some other people, I think, and that's mm. not because it's not astonishing television. Because I sat, I watched it this afternoon, and I sat there absolutely wrapped for the entire ninety minutes. And that's Mark Gatiss, so, you know, just to prove that he can. (laughs) But the point is, you know, in this version of Sherlock, there's absolutely no element of the whodunit whatsoever. Hmm. None of the cases since the first series, I think they, I can't remember, I've only watched all the episodes once, but I think in the first series there were whodunits. And then with the second series, that whodunit thing has been completely dropped. It's almost like, to my mind, like they're taking the barest bones of the Sherlock Holmes stories and making something else of them instead. So it's not like it's a new version of Sherlock. It's like it's something else. They've turned him into a superhero, haven't they? Well, they've turned him into something, but he's not... I mean, he is doing some working out, but he's never working out who's committed a crime. He's working out how crimes are committed sometimes, and sometimes he's working out how things are crimes that don't appear to be crimes, like the Hand of the Baskervilles episode, perhaps. But he's never worked... You know, in Series 2, you had the scandal in Belgravia, and then the Reich and Bash fall. But in both of those instances, you knew who it was right from the start, and it was a game of cat and mouse through the episode. It was never at any point a whodunit. Mm. And in the Baskerville one, you didn't even know that that it was an it that had been done that somebody might have done until like 15 minutes from the end. (laughs) It's like, I I mean, I love what they're doing with Sherlock, but I don't quite get what they're doing with Sherlock. No, no. It's it's kind of like a big, clever pop video, isn't it? In some respects. Yeah. It's visually stunning. It's audibly stunning. The script's great. Um... I think yeah, sometimes right. the visuals are disguising the fact that underneath there's a lot less meat than yes. I think some people really seem to yeah, or yeah. might have expected there to be. Yeah, absolutely. It's still fantastic television, though. I mean, hand in hand with Doctor Who, they are by far and away the two most astonishing, stunning series on television at the moment. 
Certainly yeah. British television. Definitely. Can I just go back to something? Um, mm. The Pandorica thing, right? just very, very quickly. Yeah. All the all the creatures turn up with some kind of um, what do they call? Well, it? that's another know? good thing, but we'll come back to that. Yeah, they all they all come together with some kind of um, a truce, isn't it, to attack the Doctor or capture the Doctor rather? Um, because that, they I, don't want to get him to trend. They don't want him to get to Trenzalore and yeah. reveal his name and let the Time Lords come through. Yeah, but I just think even even with that. It just felt. I just always feel it's a little bit weird. They're all standing next to each other. I still find that a bit odd. It's a bit dimensions in time. But with this, they came in waves. They came in waves. It felt more natural. Yes, much more plausible. Uh, Loved it. I loved the idea of you know wooden Cyberman um, for good. Wooden Cyberman, fantastic. Oh yes. Oh brilliant. Yes. And logical in the story. Yeah, uh, but let's not forget how how many times the Master was in league with other aliens. It was great in old Doctor Who when they all worked together. Yeah, and you very rarely got it. And it always, that was one of the, the other thing to me, I've said before, was that that you never saw the companions again after they left. And I always said that it felt implausible that you never would see the companions again because, you know, it almost felt stupid that they wouldn't run. You know, somebody who's worked Mm. for UNIT, like Joe Grant, You've got another, after she leaves, 15 years of stories set on Earth where there's alien invasions of Earth, and her and the Brigadier, surely you'd be bound to bump into them. Well, yeah, You know, it feels now like a far more coherent universe. It feels like they've addressed... It feels like they've addressed some of the things in classic Doctor Who that perhaps nobody ever thought about, Mm. but that because they've addressed them are suddenly set into sharper relief, like the fact that the monsters... If the Doctor's going around the universe defeating all these monsters for all these centuries, he ages centuries in the classic series, surely at some point some of these monsters would say, well, hang on a minute, we're not doing very well on our own, are we? We'd better team (laughs) up with one of these other buggers that the Doctor's defeated and see if we can't get him that way. You know, it seems... It seems more plausible. It does, but with any with any kind of coalition of any kind, you would have a strong leader type. And f- are we saying that the intelligence was the leader type for this lot, or what? Because the master the would Daleks. be perfect, wouldn't they? The Daleks. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, you know, it has to be you, the Daleks. Would you, They're would the you take a Dalek to tea? I don't know, and discuss <laughs> taking on the Doctor. I wouldn't want to trust it. Would you? It's. I don't know. Yeah, maybe the Emperor Dalek would. Uh, the master might. I don't know. There isn't one kind of very strong kind. Of, you'd expect some kind of a leader of some Starlink, kind. as a species. Yeah, maybe. And it's even nailed in when the. I mean, these ships aren't forming an alliance this time. They're just waiting to find out what it's all about. And yeah. when they do, and it all kicks off, the Dalek could wipe the floor with the others, don't they? Well, they, yeah, they 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 don't exactly sit in white, do they? Because they no, they, they just take kick over. Off. The, well, they've already they take over the church. They're not they're not just sitting there. They can't resist <laughs> taking over something. So they're there at the forefront from the off because they've taken over the yeah the strategic the position. End, yeah, it comes down to being the Doctor against the Daleks, which is perhaps what it always should have been, really. Yeah, you know, mm. uh, which is pra- when I say what it always should have been, I don't mean you shouldn't have had those other monsters there, but I mean. It's what it would always have come down to. It was lovely to see the Doctor fighting with the silence. Yeah, yeah, that was lovely. That then. was that was something I didn't because uh, it's so brief. I mean, this is what I meant about the direction. Some of those action sequences were just, you know, half a dozen shots and it was gone. Mm-hmm. It's lovely when, when they get these species mm-hmm. like that. The Ice Warriors are a bit like that, really, aren't they? They're kind of neutral. They're 
you know, you, you can imagine there being a story where the Doctor fighting, well, Curse of Peladon, blah, blah, blah. Um, or, sorry, the Peladon. Yeah, it was Curse of Peladon where the Ice Warriors were. Well, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even at the end of Cold War, they saved everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So you get these neutral aliens where it's just as possible for the Doctor to work alongside them as against them. They don't have to all be enemies, surely. And um, and obviously it's logical for the Doctor to work with the Silence in this instance because these Silence aren't the breakaway group. No, it, 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 do you know what? I was not expecting it either. When I saw them, I thought, huh? And I had to explain it to Finn. He was going, well, why are they working along? So it took a, a few minutes, but we got there in the end. And it was like, oh, great. And I think Finn said, oh, they could have made a bit more of that. And I went, yeah, actually, you're right. He could have turned around and said, oh, there you are. Yeah. Where are they going? Oh, there you are. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Some 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 kind of joke. But, but um, that's what I mean yeah. about the pacing and the tone. I think perhaps the director should have made that clearer. It's, st- it's still great, though. It's still great. Mm. Going back to the point about whether it's <clears throat> too complicated as well, and um, you know, it, it, with certain kinds of series, there are certain kinds of ways you engage with them. Like, for example. The Who Done It. If you're watching an episode of Inspector Morse, you don't expect to understand it until you get to the very end. And even when you get to the very end, you don't expect to remember the entire last two hours of television and put it all together in your head. You just assume that the ending makes sense and you kind of go with what Morse's explanation for it is when he uncovers whoever it was that done it. Similarly, in Agatha Christie, I watched uh, a couple of afternoons ago, for example, the um, David Suchet Poirot, an old one. I think I don't think it was the first Poirot on that he did on TV, but it was his uh, a version of Poirot's adaptation of the first Poirot book. And the explanation at the end, when he does the uncovering scene at the end, when he explains how he worked it all out, and the clues he gives when he works it all out. Uh, they were things that you absolutely had to take on trust. You had to suspend your disbelief for because they didn't actually make any sense. One of the big clues he got was, oh, well, somebody who was in the room must have seen a certain thing at a specific time, although I wasn't in the room at the time, so I don't know whether he did, but I'm assuming he must have because if he didn't, then the rest of my solution unravels entirely. Uh, only I only know that he did because I've got the rest of my solution in place and it's all predicated on whether he did or did not see this thing at this time. And I'm like, well, my God, that, that's a solution that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever because Poirot can't have known whether this guy saw this in order to work out the rest of this stuff and if he's worked out the rest of this stuff without knowing that it was predicated on this then he's making a mighty big leap of faith and (laughs) you know it stands to reason that he's got his solution wrong in that case but you know what I'm saying Mm. certain kinds of television you engage with in different ways and under Russell T Davis you knew that you were going to get a big character story that didn't make sense at the end. You know, with a big deus ex machina, Rose turns into the bad wolf and destroys all the Daleks. Or the Doctor flips a switch that makes them all go backwards through the wall they've just come out of, you know, an hour and a half ago. Etc, uh, etc. Et Donna turns into this sort of half-Time Lord weird thing and just sends all the Daleks spinning backwards. It's nonsense. But you get a big character story that you know will pay off in terms of the character beats. In Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, right from the start, you've known 
especially as he's also doing Sherlock at the same time, that it's going to be something that's a bit tricksy and that you might not quite be able to follow. But at the end, when the solution comes, it's going to make the same kind of sense as those solutions in things like Morse and Poirot. The bit where Clara goes into the Doctor's time stream and that's the explanation for why she's been turning up everywhere makes perfect sense. You know, the bit at the end of the time of the Doctor where he explains how the silence storyline has panned out across the last three years. The bit in the day of the Doctor where Gallifrey disappears into a pocket universe being the end of the Time War makes just as much sense as Gallifrey being destroyed. We didn't see it coming, but when it did come, it was so logical and it made perfect sense of everything else that had been going on. So you engage with the current version of Doctor Who <clears throat> in a different way. You don't expect to understand it as it's unfolding, you expect to have an explanation at the end that retrospectively makes light of all the things you couldn't quite keep up with. And the important thing is, you know who the good guys are, you know who the bad guys are, you know that the good guys got to do something to stop the bad guys, and at the end of the episode you see him doing something. And that's how that kind of television program works. And I think... Because one of these, going back to talking about the reaction to the episode rather than the episode itself, <clears throat> one of the things I've been reading is a lot of people saying, well, everybody was saying to me, I didn't understand it either. And I'm thinking, you've probably spent the last three years, four years, telling all your friends and family that Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who doesn't make sense. And so they've turned around to you at Christmas and said, oh yeah, I didn't really understand it. You know... You're just hearing what you want to hear. And you're also subconsciously laying the seeds for those people to tell you the things that you they know you want to hear. Do you know what I'm saying when I say yeah, that? Yeah, I've got to be, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, we, we always are on this thing, that, um, you know, you, you get kind of um, brainwashed by the Hollywood syndrome. You get brainwashed by the kind of easy storytelling of certain things and that it's not complicated anymore on TV. It's very easy to follow stuff. Um, and when you actually have to um, work at anything, you know, you get a bit lazy and you almost switch off. You think, oh, no, I don't know if I can be bothered with this. I've had a hard day at work. I just want to just want to kick back and relax. Stop it, Stephen. Um, and I've, I did feel that a couple of times. And I just thought, oh, for goodness sake. But, of course, now it's all wrapped up. I'm going to go back and watch the series again and fully enjoy it. There is one thing. That um, no doubt, JR, you will come straight back and go, Lee, you missed this, you great idiot. But I want to just, <laughs> I, I just want to ask you, right? Um, okay, so the Trends Law. Okay, he's on Trends Law. He's broken the rules of time pretty much because he survived Trends Law and there is no grave. Therefore, oh, no yeah, timeline. Yeah. Therefore, no ever, you know, Clara mm. wouldn't have gone back in time. He wouldn't have met the splinter Clara in Snowman and therefore he wouldn't be looking for Clara and therefore Clara, her whole story and everything to do with that should just disappear up its own bum. Am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not wrong, but that's kind of the point with time paradox storylines, isn't it? Absolutely. In order to break the paradox, you have to find the point, in the paradox where it's at its weakest and split it. It's like the Terminator films, isn't it? Day, Day of the Doctor was a massive paradox, which is why at the end they they weren't going to remember what had happened, even though they'd taken he does part a, in those events. Yeah. He does a really clever thing there, though, by making Gallifrey disappear at the moment when it would have been destroyed. Time stays yeah. the same. Here, it doesn't. Actually, I did read an explanation for the Clara thing and for the giant TARDIS and the Doctor's grave and all that uh, about a day ago, and I can't remember what it was, so I can't come back to you with that, Lee. Except mm. to say, 
Actually, the Doctor's grave is just his timeline. Nothing to say that there has to be a body there. <clears throat> no, no, and and also the the explanation of why it is why it manifests in the way it does is to do, to do with the fact that he's been so far all over the of the universe, changing history, had such an effect on time itself that he's become this. Um, uh, but you know, anomaly. <clears throat> But yes, an yeah. anomaly is probably the exact right word because my explanation for all these things is if there's a time paradox, if you break the paradox, yes, I mean, I mean, yes, all the things that should have happened to create the paradox should no longer happen mm. because the paradox has been broken. The circle's been broken, as it were. <laughs> but But we all know that time doesn't work like that. We all know that this is a fantasy, a fiction. So, in my understanding of it, that if it's paradox existed in the first place, then even though you break the circle, the fact that the paradox existed creates the elements which cause the paradox to exist, and the fact that you broke it means that you can come out of the other side of it. A bit like, this is going to be a dreadful, uh, a bit like the time loop in Megalos. They come out of the other side. They come out of the other side of the time loop, but it doesn't stop the time loop having existed for those few minutes when it did exist. But no. the fact that they come out of the other side of it should mean that it's no longer a time loop. And so that time loop, that chronic hysteresis, is that what they called it in that one? It I should mean they, that. I think that, they did, yeah. But the fact that they came out of the other side should mean that that loop itself never existed in the first place. Well, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. I To me, it's like. Um, doing a roundabout mm. it's like you can go onto a roundabout and just go around and around and around and around the roundabout <laughs> or you can go across a roundabout and not go around it at all but if you go onto the roundabout and go around it three times and then come off the other side you will still have gone around the roundabout but your destination will be a different place from your point of Entry. I am never going to go on a roundabout without thinking about it being a time paradox now. That's amazing. And uh, do the Americans have roundabouts? I don't know whether you've got to explain that. I mean, <laughs> um, listen, there's, there's yes, one, they do. one other thing, right, before I pass to Simon, because he's, he's desperate to say something. So let's let's hope the Clara jumping into the time stream thing, you know, that, that is actually still applicable because we've just written a bloody novel <laughs> between us all <laughs> called The Twelve Doctors of Christmas. That does well, you know what I've always <laughs> said as well is that <clears throat> just because... And An this was... Anthology, sorry. Yeah, but just because something happens later mm. to change the relevance of something doesn't mean that that thing wasn't relevant at the time it happened. No, no. Which um, is uh, what people were saying about Rose. They said Rose had the perfect ending at the end of Doomsday and then two years later it all changes. Well, yeah, but for those two years, that ending was good. Yeah. Uh, let's not forget uh, Sound of Drums. You had the Paradox Machine and the people who experienced that that version of history for that period of time when they were extracted... Remember it. They remember it, yeah. Eye of the Storm, exactly. Well, there, put it yeah, this yeah. way then. Clara is at the Eye of the Storm. She is. Oh, absolutely. That's right. So for... <laughs> Yeah, if you want to put it that way, this is perhaps the best explanation. If you're a time... Because this has come up so many times in the series. If you're a time traveller, if you've been on the time, on the TARDIS, you know, Rose's hand on the Dalek in the Rob Shearman episode. If you've travelled on the TARDIS, it kind of makes you immune to some of the things 
that people can't see because they don't know about time travel. Yeah. And yeah. so if you want to put it that way, then yes, Clara is immune to... A, it's a bit like the cracks in Series 5. Clara is immune to having her storyline changed by the unravelling of the time paradox. Mm, mm. It doesn't make scientific sense, but then it's Doctor Who. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Well, it, it doesn't make got... rational sense. It makes logical sense in terms of character logic you've also and got story f- logic you've also got a finite amount of stories you can tell if all the history stays in one place if history just goes one way and stays that way there's yeah. only so much you can do you you can end up being like a star trek writer where you've got to go back right through the continuity yeah. of the series well, to see is... where there's a gap you can slot a story in and then it's got this to make is... perfect sense with the next one so it's, yeah it's got to be always... fluid Fluid, this has always it? been the thing with Doctor Who. If he goes back into the past, he's not allowed to change things. But if he goes to an alien planet or into the future or even in the present, he can change as much as he likes. Yeah. And why is that? Because the audience watching at home know what happened in the past but don't know what's supposed to have happened in all these other places. See, for some well, reason, thing, I, I always the think... The about like... Stephen Moffat is he does yeah. that with time paradoxes instead of with history. Yeah, I, it's like for some reason that you know, case say as an example, a story like a Dalek, Dalek invasion of Earth. I feel that where we're seeing the Doctor's journey now, that history of Earth hasn't necessarily happened. I just it feels like there's all these different little time streams that he's gone up, and I I don't think it's kind of worked because that's such a, a funny time on Earth. Maybe I don't know. I don't know, but. You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable that someone could turn around and say, well, that invasion didn't happen because something else happened in the past that changed that. So, you know, and and the doctor always says, I remember all these possible times. I can't remember who said that. Which doctor was that? Said he, he oh, knows all. The, he says about yeah. all the possible outcomes, all the possible histories. He sees all of it. Sounds like a Matt Smith thing, but I'm not sure it wasn't before that. No, yeah. Could have been a Sylvester McCoy thing. Yeah. Mm. I don't know, but it sounds right. Um, <laughs> look, um... I meant to bring this up right at the start of the episode, but Peter Kavanagh uh, sent us a message to say Happy New Year to all the Blue Boxers, the Happy cast and listeners. <laughs> yeah. Um, shall we go on to a few emails? or uh, Does anybody have anything else they particularly want to say? I've got three very short things. Very short. Because we will come back to it again in a minute, but I think we okay. should bang through a few emails as well in the meantime. But say short things. They won't okay. be short, because I'll answer them. Yeah, you might do. <laughs> Firstly, I think the supporting... Um, Supporting character um, award should go to Handles. Um, Handles was an outstanding creation, which yeah. I absolutely adored. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, straight away, I was thinking, "Oh no, he's using a baddie again." But it's great, Stephen Moffat turning the baddies on their heads, making them good. Fantastic, brilliant creation. Uh, secondly, and reminded me slightly yeah. <laughs> of Croton from the cartoon strip. <laughs> yes, was, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I've, I've been waiting for a good. I've been waiting for a good Cyberman to come along, um, and. Uh, bald he had no hair um, in one scene oh yeah it was, complete, it was lovely it was fantastic to see him with no hair. we knew he didn't have any hair because it's a wig for most of it wasn't it or was yes. he yeah it was it was a wig so, for all of it yeah so it was beautiful just to to, to play with that and to i just knew, write that into the story yeah, yeah. i knew they were going to do that it's fantastic i was waiting for it uh the other and thing then at the end yeah go when on. he <laughs> goes face to face with um amy and the tardis in oh, the end, yeah. and they're both wearing wigs I know, that's outrageous, isn't it? <laughs> but how good was it? You just didn't know because you were so enwrapped in the story. We've uh, not mentioned Peter Capaldi yet. We'll come back to that We'll later. come back to him at the end. Naked, right? Now, 
can I just say that Simon would probably back me up here. Not that anybody cares, but I do. Um, we were going to write a comic strip for Cygnus Alpha fanzine, and it was going to have Peter Capaldi, just regenerated, goes off into the TARDIS, comes back, no clothes. Hasn't got time to talk, conquers the universe, sorts out the Dalek, Cyberman, whatever, comes back into the TARDIS after a few weeks, and she says, what's, what's up with the clothes? And he goes, what do you mean? He's only wearing a hat, by the way, right? And uh, she goes, why, why aren't you wearing any clothes? And he says, oh, the perception filter. It's, shit, it's turned on the wrong way around. So that was like our gag for the fanzine, for the comic strip. As soon as I saw that, I thought, hang on a minute, Stephen's been poking around in my head again. Is he still in that basket in the corner? Probably. And you've yeah. spent enough time in there with him. <laughs> anyway, <coughs> email. Hello, Porro. Hello, Porro says, hello, boys in the box. So hello. with me now... Banging out my innermost on the internet via the Top Geek blog, you lot might think, what sloppy seconds are you going to get? Oh, because he's uh, <laughs> now got a blog thing on the Top Geek site. So oh, really right, cool. He says, hey, that's Patrick Troughton you're talking about. All of my opinions are the same, but slightly different to the one before. And splendid opinions, all of them. Uh, he says, pick from the following 11 points to celebrate Matt, to discuss or think on. One. Stephen Moffat said he would tie up lots of loose ends, loose ends from the 11th Doctor's tenure, so please, now we know that Amy had Time Lords in her crack, yes folks, it's bigger on the inside, who is Prisoner Zero? Okay. <laughs> well, Prisoner Zero was just a character in the first story, wasn't he? I was going to say, after that comment, who cares? <laughs> well, yeah, I heard you actually in the background. I think the point is, again, people were expecting there to be more from Prisoner Zero why he was just a character in that one story. I think, again, this is a case of fans deceiving themselves into expecting something to be more complicated than it is. Mm. He says, um, uh, point two, Clara and Tasha Lem. Fantastic in the episode. I like the fact Moffat has a matriarchal mother figure so often to haul the Doctor in. River, Vastra, and now Tasha. Three handles. Long live Croton. Oh, he makes the same point I just did. The fact that the Doctor allies himself with former enemies, Sontaran, Silurian, Dalek, Tasha, gives him a more universal image and demonstrates length of time from his point of view and how peace and war fluctuate. Four, Capaldi. When Capaldi's eyes appeared in the 50th, a thread appeared on the forums which drew on how he would play the Doctor just from the two-second snippets. <laughs> he will be dark. He will be more mature. He won't suffer fools. He'll be a woman, etc. As the thread went on, it became known as Capaldi's. His first appearance at the end of time of the Doctor, he seemed to move and look like an animated bird, like the vultures in Jungle Book, or perhaps a Skeksy from Dark Crystal. <laughs> what do you all feel about his portrayal of the Doctor based on this? We'll come back to that. <laughs> We've got to do Capaldi at the end, haven't we? Five. Matt's speech about everyone changes, but you remember what you were. One minute he's universal, the next he's us. One line that could have saved us from David Tennant's long-winded death scene. A beautiful bit of scripting. And six. How hot did it get in your front room knowing that Clara was in the nip? Well, taking the hint from that, I'm off to muddle my model my nude Matt Smith costume down the Skinner's arms to see what the lads think. And you may think that there are only six points, but until a few weeks ago, I thought there were only 11 doctors. So wibbly-wobbly, county-wounty, always <laughs> yours, Reverend Captain Hollow Porro. Uh, thank you, Reverend. Yeah, we've got... Ooh. Well, we've got three from Doc now, two of which are fairly short. So let's go with those, and then well, we'll see. Um, doc, not Doc, no, Doc Whom. Sorry, God, 
I'm suffering from this cold. I'm getting my, I'm Dr. getting no. my, yeah, I'm getting my emailers mixed up with James Bond villains. Uh, gentlemen, while agreeing with your correspondent, the great intelligence that the use of the word iteration is annoying, I was bemused by his belief that we'd need a dictionary to understand it. Iteration is clearly a noun form of the word iterate, of the verb iterate. What other basic word forms in English are we expected to find confusing? Incidentally, an iteration is not a variation on a theme. An iteration is a repetition and carries a sense of monotony. Each incarnation of the Doctor is not an iteration because when he regenerates, he is renewing himself, not repeating what has gone before. Am I the only one who paid attention in English classes at school? Or did they clash with milking time down on the farm? Love, Doc Whom. <laughs> Outrageous. He just seems to write in to be horrible to me. But he's right. <clears throat> I said I didn't look it up, and I should have. Um... Gentlemen, Captain Toby Haddock hit the nail on the head with his thoughts on the layering of alien planets and civilizations, the details of which I regret I've forgotten after the Christmas festivities. J.R. did a splendid job of avoiding use of the word absolutely on this Christmas treats podcast, but instead started repeating the word excellent. That man has cyber leader written all over him. I'm sure you all remember that dialogue from Revenge of the Cybermen. Leader, the cyber bombs have reached the center of Voga. Excellent. Shall we remote detonate? Absolutely. <laughs> Note to JR, this must be read out in a convincing 1974 cyber voice. Oh, was that <clears throat> It was my attempt, as snotty and mucus-filled as I am. You can also see JR's <clears throat> brain uh, through the thin plexiglass dome just in front of his forehead. Uh, my brain's the one in... My current brain's the one in Planet of the Ood. Uh, <laughs> Doc Who carries on and says, Doctor Who annuals were indeed cool, and the first revived annual in 2005 was a beautiful throwback to their old style. However, the Doctor Who annuals were nowhere near as cool as the Dalek annuals. If Stephen Moffat truly had balls as a writer, he'd stop shilly-shallying with the deus ex machina ways of defeating the Daleks and simply bring back Joel Shaw and his android sidekick Mark Seven of the ADF. <laughs> That's anti Dalek force to any youngsters out there. Many's the time in my imagination that I've shared a cell on some alien world with Joel Shaw, trying to work out how to make 31 cigarettes out of 25. Best wishes, Doc Whom, Junior ADF Cadet Number 012. P.S. I just made up that ADF Cadet thing, but I defy you to deny that for a brief moment there you were all green with envy. <laughs> I was. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. They are great, those old annuals. I love the Soul Kingdom stories. They're great. Making 31 cigarettes out of 25. When he wrote that, that brought back uh. so many memories. <laughs> <clears throat> He's got an, a longish email about Time of the Doctor as well, in which he essentially says he thought it was... Well, he says it was a middling episode. I didn't love it and I didn't hate it. And he says, this is a problem I find with some of New Who, and especially with Stephen Moffat's era as showrunner. He says he'd actually prefer to hate an episode than not be bothered about it, partly because there are only two ways that he can blog, either in extremes of emotion or else in just taking the piss. But mostly because it's Doctor Who, he needs an emotional reaction. He's mm. far more interested in something he loathes, like time flight, than something that arouses nothing but indifference, like Unicorn and the Wasp. And then he goes on and says, of course, when he says hate... 
He's only talking about relative hate. On a TV quality scale of 1 to 100, even the worst Doctor Who, like Time Flight, scores in the mid-70s mm-hmm. and is infinitely preferable to an episode of, for example, My Family. But Time <laughs> of the Doctor... But Time of the Doctor left him feeling rather meh. Um, and you know, I shan't read Mark, out the rest of the email because it kind of carries... Mark, Mark, obviously Mark's not here, and he had the same, much the same reaction I noticed on Facebook. That was exactly the word he used, meh. Yeah, these people listen to too many American podcasts. But the only thing Us I would... English can't say the word meh properly, The most ir, ir... How do you say it? Meh. Meh. Oh, it's not like the unicorn in, in Dungeons and Dragons. Meh. No. No, it's not a unicorn. All it right. just means, what did you think of it? Well, it was meh. Meh. Okay, well, Mark said the same thing, but the most irritating thing I saw on Facebook was somebody quoted that lovely bit of script from the end where he says, if you think about it, we're all, we're, we all change, we're all different people, which was beautiful. And somebody immediately wrote under it, meh. And I just thought, you, you donut. You've made yourself yeah. sound really ignorant or you're just trying to have an effect. And I just thought, yeah, okay. But um, Doc Hume has got a very, very strong point, which is I, I probably feel the same. Um, that it it being the brave program that it is, it should go one of two ways. It should be absolutely brilliant or completely <laughs> miss the mark. I don't I don't know. I know what, I know what he means though. You want to get a reaction out of people, and uh, for it to be just treading water is a dangerous place, specifically for Doctor Who because it needs to be constantly changing. Yeah, can I just slip slip in there, there, Simon? Um, yeah, no, I agree totally that um, I have been feeling a bit middling, a little bit kind of distant from the program. As much as I love it, uh, something like you know the dinosaurs on the spaceship was great fun. I loved it in that kind of yeah, that was like fun, and but it didn't give me anything emotional. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't emotional like say some of the RTDs. We I've been rewatching them all with my kid, and we've been sitting and I, I'm getting dead emotional with it because the characters are so well drawn, etc. Et this one, this last one, I think the reason why not only did I, I, I loved it because uh, not not just because of all the complexities being explained, it being a really well realised planet and society, everything about it just fall into place for me. But it had an emotional moment where I. Yeah, I started to feel it again. I felt my heart go, oh, oh, you know, oh, I'm feeling emotional. It actually got me, this one. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, that's why I like it so much. I think, um, I don't know how many times Doc Coombs watched it, but um, you said this as well, JR, that, that I sp- a lot of the people I spoke to who didn't like it or were unfussed about it watched it again and had a completely different experience from it. Yeah, there were. Lo- I saw this on... Facebook particularly, but also in other places as well, that, like, because I wrote my review, the review I wrote for Starburst, I I wrote that before I'd looked anywhere, which is what I usually do. Mm. I like to write my review before I know what anybody else thinks. And I put a couple of comments in there, because I could tell watching the episode that there were going to be things in there that certain types of fan would have certain kind of a problem with. And I thought, I'll head that off at the pass by putting a couple of throwaway comments in there. And I think, because the review didn't then appear for another 24 hours or so, and the reaction had happened, I think a lot of people thought I'd written that review in reaction to the reaction. Mm. Which, mm. you know, was it was just coincidence. I had no idea what the reaction was going to be like. No, no. Um, but... Interestingly, but you're though, right. I think I think um, 
I'll, it'll be interesting to talk to Mark when he's able to join us again, uh, Mark Cochran, because um, obviously he watched that episode. Uh, I th- possibly well, by the time he's watched it again, he might have changed his mind. Well, it? yeah, yeah, this is it. He would have watched the episode while his wife was in labour. I mean, or just about to be in labour, yeah, or just about to be in labour. So, I, I, I do wonder whether there was a lot more going on at home, and he wasn't actually fully taking it in. Engaged. And let's face it, mm. his emotions were probably somewhere else. So we'll we'll wait and see. I think. And no, you know, no excuse. <laughs> Uh, there's a thing about Stephen Moffat's writing that I don't think I've ever brought up, but that's always been in the back of my mind. And one of the common complaints that's levelled against him is that he doesn't write people like people. He writes too much witty dialogue, and you can't believe in them as real people. He writes all his women the same, he writes all his men the same, etc., etc., and so on and so forth. They think that Stephen Moffat doesn't write people. Well, that's not true, because Stephen Moffat bases most of his characters, certainly his female ones, on his wife and his mother-in-law. You know, if you go back over Stephen Moffat's career with chalk and joking apart and coupling and everything else, all these characters are based on Sue and Beryl Virtue. That's what Sue and Beryl Virtue are like. That's Stephen Moffat's, you know, closest interface with the opposite gender. And that's what he writes his women like. And he writes most of his men based on himself. If you've ever seen Coupling, there are ostensibly six characters in Coupling, three men and three women. But if you look at it a bit closer, and if you understand it a little better, and if you know a little bit of the background about where it comes from, those three men are all Stephen Moffat, and those three women are all Sue Virtue. Different aspects of her personality, different aspects of his personality that all come out through uh, these six characters that he's written into this story. And there's an element of that in Doctor Who. But I think the underlying point is, yes, the characters in Doctor Who might speak in more witticisms than people really do, but that's just, you know, to me, making a fun and entertaining program. Mm. But when people say he doesn't have a handle on what people are really like, that's so not true. Perhaps he does it more subtly than Mm. some other Mm. writers do who write big character beats and big character arcs and throw the character stuff in your face. The character stuff... I just yeah, the character sorry. stuff is all there in Stephen Moffat. It's just that he's not throwing it in your face. Don't we these, wanna, pe- these characters uh, are based on real people. Yeah. He's just not throwing big character beats in your face. Don't don't we want our heroes to shine brightly though? And wouldn't wouldn't the Doctor surround himself with people who are bang 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 fast as fast as he is to keep up with him? There and are, clever, there and are intelligent. Sm- yeah, yeah, and there are smaller characters uh, in, on the periphery. But they make for boring television. I mean, just look at The Only Way is Essex or Geordie Shaw mm. or something like that. That If you want to watch dull people, realistic people, then watch them. But I'm sorry, I want my television to be entertaining. All right. Um, well, I did say we'd try and get to Adam's email and then maybe talk about Peter Capaldi as well for a minute or so afterwards. I mean, he wasn't there for long, so there shouldn't be too much to say. <laughs> Although I do have one thing I want to say, but we'll get we'll bring that up when we get there. Look, Adam's email, his email was actually quite short. He just said, I've written a review, I want you to read it, and maybe use it on the show. And so I went and looked, and, well, you know, I can't speak for him. I don't know whether he is, 
but his review, his email, seemed to be guilty of all the things... Do you remember a couple of days ago there was that Facebook post I made that most people misunderstood? Yeah. And without going into too much detail, what I was intending to highlight were people who watch television with the intention of not liking it. Mm. And it goes back to this thing. If you're not enjoying it, why are you watching it? Because there are so many other things that you could be watching instead. So Adam's email, and I don't know whether he is, but his email, it just reeks of all the things that you would expect from somebody who's watched it with the intention of not enjoying it. He points out, he's basically his email is a list of all the things he found in it to dislike. Mm, on them. And I, I'm not going to read the entire thing because it's pages long, but I shall bring up some of his points and maybe attempt to address them. He, I mean, he starts with, where the hell did Handles the Head come from? I'll tell you where, from the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks. Yes. It was Wilson. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's what I thought as, I thought that as well. Mm. But, I mean, Which was for nice. example, Adam has a problem with the fact that Stephen Moffat's borrowed an idea from somewhere else. Oh, well, I'm assuming then that Adam would write off the whole of the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era. Yeah. I mean, well, to not like something because it's borrowed whole, is not a good reason not to like it. And we return to but, Star Wars. Let's let's get rid of Star Wars. Mm, Doctor Who's always been best when it's been borrowing things. Yeah, definitely. And I've got to say that it was a much better scenario and there was no Tom Hanks. Yeah. He says, um, a bit going on with the same point about handles, he says... Um, why was it there? He says, for the first five minutes, because the companionless doctor would have someone by whom to get exposition across. But the joke's on, and he calls him Muffet, because nothing that happens in the first five minutes made any sense anyway. You're telling me the doctor who has battled these foes for a century can accidentally beam himself aboard both a Dalek and Cyberman ship without realising it. Well, for a start, you kind of missed out the fact that it was Handles who was beaming him onto these ships. But the point there is, I mean, if you're not prepared to suspend disbelief for a two-minute amusing sequence where the Doctor can beam himself on board a Dalek ship and then realises in trouble when the Daleks turn up, you're not supposed to be taking that bit too seriously. It's just a bit of fun to kick the episode off. And if you're already looking at that as a problem, you're really not going to enjoy the rest of the episode, are you? I saw it as a little bit of a, a bit of a laugh, a little bit of a poke at Star hmm. Trek, actually. You know that he's actually being beamed across, and they're normally quite accurate in Star Trek, and he's he's got it completely wrong twice. And one of the other things that Adam has a problem with is why the Doctor should have such a close relationship with Handles that when he dies after three hundred years, you know, he feels such an emotional wrench because he says, in Castaway, Tom Hanks is on a desert island with Wilson. And so that's why he has such an emotional attachment with him. But the Doctor's not on a desert island. He spends 300 years in a village full of people. To which I pointed out, yes, he spends 300 years in a village full of, you know, about 15 different generations of people who all age and die. Handles is the only one who is his constant continuity throughout those entire 300 years. Of course it's going to be more of a wrench. And he's also the, 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 the only piece of technology there. And the Doctor has an affinity mm. with technology. Mm. So, yeah. Here's another one of Adam's yeah. problems. Speaking of the Daleks, weren't they supposed to have been wiped out when the Doctors made Gallifrey disappear? That was the whole point, that the Daleks would shoot each other in the crossfire. So where have these Daleks come from? You know, to which the answer is, you know, when the Doctor wipes out the Daleks in the Day of the Doctor, 
that takes place before Dalek and the parting of the ways yeah. and Doomsday and yeah. all the other Daleks in between. That's where these Daleks have come from. Yeah, Asylum of the he Daleks. Then, yeah. yeah, he then I've says... To, I've got to be honest, I've given up anyway. The Daleks are always going to be there. It doesn't matter really, Exactly. They will just turn up, won't they? He says, if you construct a wooden Cyberman, why would you make his primary weapon a flamethrower, the number one enemy of wood? Uh, to which I said, well, you know, you're not supposed to point the weapon at yourself. And also it looks really and he, nice. And then when and he does, he blows a hole in himself. Exactly. And actually, the scene where he does that, I didn't notice quite how clever that was till the second time, but that is probably the cleverest scene in the entire thing, where the Doctor actually does send a signal to the flamethrower. And so when he says to the Cyberman, if you read my, you know, if you read my sonic screwdriver, you'll see that I sent a signal. And if you listen to what I'm saying, because the truth field, you'll know that I'm telling the truth. And the Cyberman believes him, and of course it's because it's wood, and it didn't work on wood that the Cyberman killed himself. That's an amazingly <laughs> sort of clever for such a throwaway scene bit of television. You wouldn't want not to have that bit, surely. I mean, the point with these things is, if you want to analyse them that closely, then yes, they can not make sense. But would having them not make that sense diminish or expand your enjoyment of the episode? And if your enjoyment of that episode would have been expanded by getting rid of the wooden, wooden Cyberman and getting rid of that scene where the Doctor does the clever thing with the flamethrower, then I'm sorry, I don't really understand you know, why you'd be watching Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who because that's what Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is. Well, take it to its logical conclusion, why would you even watch Doctor Who? If you're really looking for reasons for everything, yeah, you're going like to think... Like a TARDIS that's bigger on the inside. And yeah, and he comes from another planet, but oh, I don't know. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, it's, I think what this guy's doing, it's good to point out all these things. It gives us and everybody else something to talk about as well, because already we're saying, well, there's an answer for this and there's an answer for that. I mean, the wooden mm. Cyberman thing, I'm partly in agreement with the fact that, yeah, it's a bit dim having a flamethrower on a wooden object, yes, but it is pointing the other direction. That's, that's exactly what you said. He wouldn't be pointing at himself. Um, and also, I don't think anything else could get through that. Uh, any other weapon would be able to get through that barrier, would it? Which is why they <coughs> had to have it exactly. like that. But yeah, yeah, I kind of take his point, but I think you you get answers for most of these, which is uh, what it's all about, really. Oh, and uh, let's, also, let's also not forget that the Cyberman himself was probably expendable. I mean, well, yeah. he, pro he was proved he was, he was expendable. down there to do a job. So what, yeah. what's the one weapon they can get in there that's going to do the most damage is something that's flame-based. And how can they get it in there without it being detected? He's going to have to be made of something which isn't detectable. I just want to see their woodwork classes. That'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's treated wood anyway. I'm sure they varnished it with some kind of flame retardant thing. Um, I'll, I'll just do one more point and then we'll move on, shall we? Because I don't want to make a big thing of this. And I no, don't, no. This no, guy uh, listens to us and I don't want to be like I'm taking the piss out of him. No, no. But I just no, thought his email was a great example of some of the things that we were talking about and so it was therefore worth bringing it up in order I mean, to answer some of those points. The thing is is to say to Adam, it, it's honestly, so he doesn't want to feel like we're, we're just pulling it all apart for the sake of making him look silly. It's not at all. Just chill out and enjoy it. Just try and chill out and enjoy it. Because it's, yes. it's not, it, it's to be enjoyed. It's, it's not to make you feel bad and to make other people feel bad either. That's, what, that's the thing that's got me down about a lot of the things that were said. On online is it felt like it was there to be aggressive 
and I, yeah. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. I don't think Adam's doing that at all because for a start, he's given us this review to examine and analyse. So, you know, it's all about sharing your opinions and it's all about trying to see it. And it may be that he comes away from this thinking, yeah, you've got a fair point. Or he may not, and that's fine. And that's fine. But thank you, Adam, okay, for we'll, in, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we'll leave it there then. We shan't sort of hammer that home any further. Um, oh, one more thing we didn't... I mean, there's, there's so many things in that episode. I mean, it was so simple, but there was so much in there. The truth field, the fact that it was... Gallifrey that was causing the truth field and because I didn't think I fully got this the first time but they needed to know that it was the doctor so they created the truth field so that only the doctor being honest would let the time lords know that it was safe to come through I mean so many of these things we've had foreshadowed across the last sort of two or three years of the series and they all come to fruition in this in ways we didn't expect it's brilliant and beautiful and then we get the bit where clara does say the doctor's name and the doctor's name is the doctor because what other name does he need mm. yeah. well that was fantastic okay peter capaldi well, god i'll let you two run first first thing i thought about when i saw his eyes was Tom Baker's back. <laughs> he's mm. got he's got some Tom Baker eyes there, hasn't he? Um, the other thing I thought about um, was the actually the regen sequence. I, I I honestly thought that he was going to be there on the tower fighting yeah. off the rest of them. I honestly believed that it, Matt's time is up. Now it's time for Peter to just step in and just do his thing. And you're gonna have to get over this Christian names only thing because you've got two Peters now. Oh no, you've played you're doctors. Right. <laughs> Capaldi then uh, no you're right yeah but uh, and I kind of I felt a little bit disappointed about that but actually it was very clever the way that he snaps back his head and there he is that really shocked the whole room everybody went yeah. <laughs> brilliant uh, totally shocked us oh yeah brilliant great regeneration scene uh, not sure that he's completely obviously he's only had this, a couple of attempts at getting the character right at this point and I'm not sure whether he's completely there. He hasn't completely convinced me yet. Like the comedy line. three lines. <laughs> I know, yeah, I know, I know, I know. And it was the same with Matt Smith. I didn't like his first few lines either. Oh, I'm not a girl and all that. Um, and nor did I did necessarily... They were like, um, mm. David Tennant's. Oh, uh, teeth, that's weird. You know, I, I, no, no, not really. <laughs> don't like any of those. Well, that's just become a theme. Yeah, but I've got to say... But did you not I see what else Stephen Moffat was doing there? I, I love the way he was tumbling about and it was really mental and there wasn't a lot of and, uh, a lot, a lot of Murray Gold's music. I was going to say Andy Murray then. Uh, Murray Gold's music really up front. You could hear what he was saying. He was tumbling about and there was a great line of how do I fly this thing? Which I really hope he's lost his memory because That'd be a great, great 13 episodes. Well, <clears throat> yes, but why? Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Is Stephen Moffat, I asked this question in my review, but let's bring it up again. Is Steve, see, the thing is, Matt Smith's regenerating on the roof, and then we get the shot of the feet coming up the stairs in the TARDIS, and you're obviously <laughs> meant to think it's Peter Capaldi already, but it's mm. not, because it's a reset regeneration, and... I mean, this doesn't really make sense either, but in order to have that last scene with Matt Smith looking young again in the TARDIS, of course it's worth it. So, Matt Smith hasn't quite regenerated yet. And then he says it's the reset regeneration, and he's starting a new cycle of regenerations. So Peter Capaldi is, in effect, the first Doctor. And what the, would the first Doctor not know how to do? fly a TARDIS. He wouldn't know who the Daleks or the Cybermen were. He'd never have met the Master. Is that what Stephen Moffat's about to do with the character? 
hope so. I don't know. I don't know because you've got that appearance in Day of the Doctor, haven't you? You have, but you don't know how far down the line that is for the 12th Doctor. No, that's true. That's true. Or 13th Doctor, really, because you've got to count John Hurt. So He's the 13th now, mm-hmm. I guess. John I, Hurt I, was the 12th. I, I like the cast. name that um, um, my good friend Mark Anderson came up with, which is he's Doctor 2.1. I like that. Oh, loads of people have been saying that. Have they? Oh, well, he thought of it first. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Can I? He's the twelfth Doctor. He's the twelfth actor to play the character of is, the Doctor. He it's don't... not an on-screen counting code. It's an off-screen counting code. As far as the general public is concerned, Matt Smith was the eleventh person to play the Doctor. John Hurt played a sidestepping Doctor, and Peter Capaldi is the twelfth person to play the Doctor. Mm. Therefore, he's the twelfth Doctor. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um. Yeah. I. Well, it's like you say. You can't really get a flavour of what. The, what. What. I. I loved everything. Every little moment of. Him being on screen, I love the manic look. I th- oh, he was shocking, wasn't he? His face is absolutely shocking. Um, when he was looking at Clara, her her acting was incredible, lovely. Just the look in her eyes. Yeah. I loved the fact that he was falling all over the place like C three PO in the Millennium Falcon, <laughs> without doing another Star Wars reference, except I have. Um, and also, I didn't detect much Scottish accent, but that may change over time. <clears throat> was there? There was. There was some. Yeah, it's a light accent, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think uh, any program that's as popular as Doctor Who is at the moment in America is not going to overemphasize his Scottish accent. Mm. It'll, you know, he's not wiped his Scottish accent out, but I think he's perhaps playing it down a little bit, and that's yeah. probably that's probably for the best anyway. And I love the fact that his first words were kidneys. I love that. What I kind of liked and didn't really quite expect was that it was so. Um, such a normal regeneration. Stephen Moffat didn't, because I always assumed that Stephen Moffat would be the one guy to do something completely different with the regeneration, like have the next Doctor in the whole of the last Doctor's last episode. I've said this before on the podcast, haven't I? Mm. And the fact that it was such a normal regeneration took me by surprise a bit, and actually I found... It was quite nice. It's like Stephen Moffat. He loves to push the boundaries, but he seems to know what boundaries you shouldn't push against. Mm. <clears throat> somebody asked. So, somebody asked online as well. Why? Why would he bother changing his clothes when he got back in the TARDIS? That was another question that came up. And I said, "Oh, well, I don't know. If you've Did been he? wearing the same clothes for well, I can't remember who asked it, but." Um, I said, well, if you'd been wearing the same clothes for 300 years, you'd probably want to change. Well, probably, presumably he hasn't, because he did have access to the TARDIS all that oh, time. Yeah, of course he did. I don't course know. Yeah, but it's a massive red herring, and it works. Right. I think we should knock it on the head, should we not? Mm. Mm. Um, I think next time might be a guest podcast. Not sure. Mm-hmm. Not sorted out yet. But... Because we've got Mark missing, and I think we're going to alternate just for the next couple of weeks mm-hmm. in order to try and space ourselves out a bit. So anyway, I mean, we'll find out next time. I'm not going to. I'm not going to make any predictions as to what the next episode's going to be until it turns up. As I was saying to one of those emails last week, you know, literally, this podcast is just made up as we go along. No plans. 
Can I just ask one last thing? Um, is yeah, it, go on. When's it coming back? Is it coming back in autumn? That was the rumour that I've heard. Yeah, late September, I think. That's so long to wait. <laughs> yeah, but actually, I think that's good. Yeah, You've got probably. this new doctor. I'm going to be nearly 44. Let's, let's give Matt Smith a little time yeah. to live in live on in our memories before we start getting too excited yeah, about the Can I say, chat. I don't think I've mourned a doctor quite so much. And I do honestly think he is my favourite Doctor now. Yeah. I really do. I, I, I love Patrick Troughton. Of the classic Doctors, I love Patrick Troughton because he's Patrick Troughton. But I think I I don't think I've felt quite a re- the same wrench, which I'm surprised about because it, it did get towards the end of David Tennant that you thought, oh my God, what are they going to do afterwards? More of a fear of who was going to come next. But I think with Matt, it's they've got the timing just right. And it's, it's we say it every time. It's nice when they go before you think it's time for them to go. Well, I'll tell you what we will do in a few weeks is do a 11th Doctor podcast where we go back over the four years. So mm. We'll have uh, plenty of time to talk about Matt Smith then. I'm going to miss him. I thought he was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I agree for Doc Whom. He doesn't like me saying just absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, then. Until next time, I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon.